There's a story out there that goes like this. When the pandemic arrived, office buildings emptied out, but it's not exactly true. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Carl Gomez, chief economist and head of market analytics at CoStar, which is one of the world's largest providers of commercial real estate information. Gomez told me that even before the pandemic, office utilization rates, which is basically the number of people per square foot of office space, had been dropping. In other words, offices were already starting to empty out. He characterized lower office utilization rates as a long-term structural trend, the seeds of which were planted decades ago when the internet became a thing that people started using and which has persisted as the cloud evolved and services like remote video meetings, aka Zoom, have grown in popularity. So in general, as we debate whether we'll all go back to the office or all end up on some sort of hybrid work schedule or stay remote, it's worth remembering that this trend of work from home didn't so much start during the pandemic as accelerate at that time. And there's another point I want to make, which is that if you buy into the narrative that most employees like working from home and most employers want people back in an office, this is a battle then between labor and management. Then there's a couple of events on the horizon that could determine what happens here including higher interest rates and the impact on commercial real estate that was financed with debt, but also what happens in the job market and whether there's a recession or not. So there's a lot of factors at play in whether or not remote work remains. And because this is a dense topic, this interview is twice as long, and this is a double episode. As always, it is edited for clarity and brevity. Carl, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I wanted to ask you about something. Office rates, utilization rates have been changing for a while, but a lot of people think the pandemic was an inflection point. What exactly has been happening during the pandemic, before the pandemic, after the pandemic? Sure. You know, for, for most of the 2000s, office utilization had been relatively steady. We were kind of operating off of a, I would say, 1960s, 70s model of, you know, the more people you hire, the more bums in the seats, the more office space you need. <laughs> But interestingly enough, after the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, many, many companies started to reduce the amount of office that they were utilizing. And partly what was going on was that they were just stuffing more people in, in offices. You know, we were all in cubicles, even more so, share, you know, mm. like give rows of spaces. And, and a big part of why they were doing that, especially in the United States where their economy was hit hard, was as a cost savings device. So we started to see overall office utilization rates start to go down. So the more people you hired, you didn't change the amount of office space you used. But a bigger factor is about the rise of knowledge workers. Knowledge workers can work from anywhere. You know, if you go into a Starbucks and you open up your iPhone or BlackBerry and, and send an email, you're working. So that changes the game. So I just want to ask a follow-up to something you just said, which is that Office utilization rates declined after the Great Recession, but I would have thought the opposite, that if companies are trying to save money and they're stuffing more butts into seats, that office utilization would go up. Right. Uh, sure. So, you know, going into a recession, you know, absolutely companies do want to save money on their on their office costs, you know, employee costs, office costs, they're trying to save their bottom line. And so typically what happens in a recession is that they do try to stuff more people into space. They actually increase their utilization. 
That absolutely happened during the great financial crisis. The events immediately following that saw office utilization bump up really quickly. But at that point, after they start doing that, they have to right-size their their costs, right-size their staff, right-size their office utilization. And that's when we started to see office utilization start to fall dramatically. It was, you know, after that initial period of recessions, you, you do get the right-sizing that occurs. And I think a big takeaway from that, you know, if you if you talk to the real estate community, some of the brokers and, and leasing reps, many of them are actually saying, well, you know, if we get into a recession, we can command a lot of people to come back to the office. Um, the employer will have that opportunity and we'll see office utilization go up again. Well, that's true immediately following a recession. But as history has shown, every single recession following a recession, there's always right sizing. So that that's the takeaway to me. I see. So essentially what happens is 2008 to 2010, you saw office utilization increase as, as companies tried to save costs, cut back on space, stuff more people into the same amount of space. And then there's been a slow decline in office utilization as companies took out more space. People got further and further apart in the office. Cubicles got bigger. And then is it the case that in 2020, it spiked again and we saw a sharp decline since then? Yeah, you know, again, two, 2020, we went into another recession, and that was exactly the situation that happened. You know, there was a recession, there were job losses that, that started occurring. So, you, you know, it didn't really start to translate into office utilization till right after that when people weren't actually in the office. So, and I think that's the takeaway. Companies were actually utilizing more office space than they needed after that, and they realized, so they had to cut back. I see. Office utilization, it's probably a metric that's common in the real estate industry. And I think people intuitively grasp what it means. But as an economist who studies this, what does like office utilization rate signal to you generally? Like, is it a good bellwether of anything else? Conceptually, people in the industry think of office utilization as the amount of square feet per person. That's the going in metric that they look at. So, you know, when people are designing offices, they kind of think, okay, well, how many people, you know, what kind of square footage do we need per person? They decide whether that goes into an office space or whether it's into a cubicle or a shared area. And those are the metrics they use on that end. From a broader economic standpoint, it's the number of employees divided by this, the amount of square footage that that is available, the inventory of office. So what that tells us more so is on a broader level, how are firms thinking about utilizing office space relative to their workforce? That's a big question because if the workforce is expanding, all else equals, they would take more a proportionate amount of space if the office utilization rate was steady. But if the office utilization rate is declining, which we have been seeing, that means people are hiring, but it's not necessarily translating into bums in the seat in the office. Uh, you know, and one way to think about this is companies could be hiring external consultants. They could be hiring, you know, remote workers. They could be hiring, you know, individuals who don't need office space. And that's the gist of what we see here is that the biggest factor contributing to this is knowledge workers can work from anywhere. And they don't necessarily need to be in an office to be able to create that. And, you know, the rise of the consultant, the gig economy, but even now, typical office workers such as yourself and myself have been able to show that we can work from anywhere thanks to technology. And that's what's changed the dynamic big time. 
The question I wanted to ask you too was, are we losing certain office jobs to automation? Is that also a factor potentially? Uh, I think it's less of a factor because, you know, office work is knowledge work and knowledge work can't be automated. There are certainly certain types of office work, you know, routine processes that, that are done, you know, if you're, if you're you know, a call center or something like that. Why would you have that inside of an office when you could just automate it off of, uh, you know, off of a computer? So why would you pay for the cost of that? But when I mention gig workers, I don't necessarily mean, you know, the Uber drivers and, you know, all that sort of stuff. What I'm meaning is, you know, the, the guy who can, you know, do your IT remotely or, you know, the person who can draw up a contract and, and be offshored somewhere else to do it. You know, that that work is knowledge work. It's specified to the person who's doing it. They need to bring some sort of creativity to the scene, but they don't necessarily need to be in an office in, you know, a hierarchical situation to do that work. And, and I think that's the rise of that that we've seen recently. You know, the technology companies are littered with it. You know, guys who start up these businesses in their garage, (laughs) they're doing work, but they're in their garage. Oh, totally. And it's purely sort of that kind of promise that we've been hearing about for 20 years that the internet is going to kind of, you know, make these types of works possible to do remotely. Absolutely. And it seems like it just took so long. It caught us a little bit maybe unawares or by surprise. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. I think the technology needed to get there for this to happen. I mean, I remember in the 90s, lots of talk about the end of work and all of this sort of stuff. But the technology wasn't quite there to facilitate, you know, things to, to revolutionize the, the, the labor market. But the technology, particularly the communication technology, uh, really provided the ability to do this. The cloud, you know, to be able to store big pieces of data securely, um, you know, all of those sort of innovations, which really only happened in the last 10 years, is is what's basically driving that. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. It's a long way from a dial-up connection to Zoom and Google Docs and whatever else is in the cloud. Um, Yeah. I just want to go back for a second. I know from your study, which I'll link to in the post for this podcast, that office utilization steadily declined by an annualized rate of about 1.4% between 2009 and 2010. And following the pandemic in early 2020, the annualized decline in office utilization accelerated to 7.5%. So almost five and a half times higher, just a massive jump. Yeah, big change. So what happened was, you know, we did see a a moderate decline in office utilization between 2009 and 2019. So in that 10 years, we started to see a steady decline in in utilization, both in Canada and the United States. But in 2020, when the pandemic hit, you remember a lot of people had to work from home. And so what happened was the utilization rate dropped dramatically. You had idle offices, whereas hiring was continuing, people were growing their workforces, and the amount of office space that was being used wasn't being reflected the same way. So the utilization rate started to drop even further because people were working from home instead of the office. And what we've seen since 2020 is a continued deceleration at a rate that's even faster than what it was before the pandemic. So there's a bit of a myth to saying that the pandemic caused office utilization to fall. No, it was falling before that. It only accelerated the situation coming out of the pandemic. Right. This is, I think, what you would call a long-term structural trend using left office space. You said during the Great Recession, it started as a way to save money by businesses, but you also said it's a product of the knowledge economy. Maybe say a little bit more about what that means. 
Yeah. And I, I think this is where, you know, this is a long-term structural trend. A lot of times we kind of talk about knowledge workers and office workers as synonymous. Knowledge workers are people that create for a living. That could be, you know, somebody who works in tech, somebody who works in banking. And every time they do something, it's different. It's not a routine sort of process. It requires what's going on inside of the person's brain to produce that output. And when you look at the growth in jobs over the last, you know, half, you know, 25, 30 years, most of the job growth in the economy has been knowledge workers. And those knowledge workers don't need a specific place to work. You can work, you know, at home, you can work at the office, you can work, as I mentioned, in Starbucks or the golf course, and you can still create, you can still be productive. And technology has provided the, the platform to do that. And so as knowledge workers become more and more important in the economy, the less they are reliant on one place to do it because you can work like that from anywhere. And I think what happened was the pandemic really was a real world experiment to see whether all knowledge workers could do that. And certainly that was the case. People were productive when they worked from home. Before that, you know, a lot of knowledge workers were part of the gig economy. And they worked, you know, at a co-working spot or they worked from a rented office or from their home office. But today it was all office workers, all knowledge workers had the opportunity to try that out. And it fit and it worked for them. <laughs> Maybe I can go back to that. A lot of people still work from home, but more and more I hear about companies calling workers back to the office on a full-time or a hybrid basis. In terms of the office utilization rate, is it stabilizing? How has it changed recently? Well, you know, we've been monitoring that to see whether there's a stabilization because what's happened is, as you pointed out, many companies are ordering people to come back to to the office, you know, following the lockdowns. And people are absolutely doing that. We have started to see some movement back into the office but everybody is moving back more or less in a hybrid capacity. So they're not 100% working from home. They're not 100% working in the office. And as a result, the office utilization rate hasn't stabilized yet because companies are still trying to figure out in this hybrid world how much office space they actually need. And so I think what we are going to start to see is some recovery in office utilization, but it's probably not going to get back to the levels that we were even pre-pandemic. So that's a moving target. That's something we're watching. But it's certainly the trends are suggesting that we haven't seen a reversal in this utilization or a stabilization in office utilization yet. Huh. Let's talk specific cities possible. Is what's happening in Toronto versus what's happening in Calgary versus Vancouver or Ottawa, Halifax, how different are these based on how much tech there is, how much knowledge working there is in these cities? Yeah, it's, it, that's a very important point. And what we've noticed is bigger cities with major tenants that are a little bit more dense in terms of their situation has seen the same sort of situation with the reduction in office utilization. So it's definitely happening very much in downtown Toronto. We've even seen that happen in Vancouver, which is a smaller city, but a big reliance on tech workers who do commute in the region and it's congested. Uh, certainly in Montreal as well. Uh, Calgary, a little bit of a different story because, you know, to begin with, office utilization was already low pre-pandemic because of the oil bust that impacted that office market. But I'll jump further and say that we are seeing the exact same trends in big cities like New York, San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, where they're dealing with the same sort of issues that we're seeing in Canada. 
The only difference is in Canada, we're actually seeing a situation that's that even less utilization of office than even some of those major American cities. And there's some reasons behind that we can talk about. But yeah, it's very much a Canadian phenomenon, very much a big city phenomenon. I'm curious, actually, now you've piqued my interest. Why is Canada different? Well, here's the real issue at heart. And when you when you talk to employees, when you talk to office workers, and certainly their employers ask these questions, is why aren't you coming into work? Well, if you're in a big city like Toronto, where you have congestion to get into work, and a good chunk of office workers are coming in, not from the downtown core, but from the suburban regions, exurban regions, you rely on transit to get there. And, you know, the transit doesn't work very well. It takes an hour. It can take two hours. If you're on the road, one accident can stop you from getting in. That's a big factor of time and money for you to commute. And so what we're seeing is these big commuter cities where people have to go in to get into the office and realize, look, I'm not going to pay that money, you know, to get there. I'm not going to wait in, in, in transit to do that. And so that is a big, big factor. High congestion, long commute cities are, are the biggest problem. The other factor is that there's a good chunk of people who, because they're not working in the cities, have larger suburban homes where they can have a comfortable home office. They live in towns where there's lots of services and amenities catered to them as well. And so with that opportunity, they've taken the advantage of not having to make that trek into the city to work. Right. Commutes play a huge role in all of this. In the past, when I've had guests on to talk about what's going to happen to the office, they've brought that up, that if you're an office in a suburban space, that they actually saw more people coming back earlier in the pandemic because those tend to be cheaper real estate so they can space people out more. Yeah, that's a very fair observation. What we saw and what we're continuing to see is that this impact is having more of an impact in the downtown cores, the financial cores of those office markets than they are in suburban markets. You know, there there has been some work from home aspects and remote work issues for suburban, but predominantly in suburban markets, like you said, there's lots more space. Even during the pandemic, people who were ordered not to go to the office were coming in because <laughs> you have space to spread out. Um, it's a nice retreat out of your home. And, and also the other factor is that many of these suburban office markets, but even exurban markets, like you think outside of the major areas like London or Hamilton or, you know, St. Catharines, the tenants and the employers that are there are not traditional big tenants like banks that have, you know, a standardized policy in terms of how people work. So there's a lot more flexibility there and those markets haven't been impacted. In fact, one of the interesting stats I saw was a place like Columbus, Ohio which is, you know, a mid-sized city in the United States, did not see any impact. Wow. Meanwhile, San Francisco, which is a dense city, has seen tremendous impact. So you've got a 30% vacancy rate where San Francisco's heading. And Columbus, Ohio, whose economy is not as dynamic as San Francisco's, has a far lower vacancy rate. So that tells you a lot. Yeah, this speaks to some sort of divide between city and suburb or exurb. Staying on the topic of empty office buildings in downtown cores, whether San Francisco or Toronto, I will say that you sometimes hear that the slightly downscale buildings were being hit harder. So buildings on the outskirts of office districts or otherwise less desirable buildings. Has that persisted? Yeah, that's a fair observation. The lower quality buildings are the ones that typically were being impacted the most. Because when you think about it, if you have to commute into an office building, but you're in an old building that, you know, has kind of brown sort of 1960s, 50s architecture with no services and stuff, 
yeah, you don't want to be there, right? I mean, it's just a, it's a dismal environment. But interestingly enough, a big chunk of the vacancy that we're seeing or availability is actually in the traditional big office towers in Toronto. So you think of First Canadian Place. For listeners, First Canadian Place is at the intersection of King and Bay Streets, prime location. You know, there's a substantial amount of the available space in, in those towers. Where we're actually seeing the, the biggest impacts in the, in the market are buildings that were built before 2015. So it's not just about the class of building, it's about the age and quality of the building. And buildings built before 2015, like most of the traditional bank towers, don't have flexible floor plates. The technology isn't quite like the newer buildings. There is a little bit of kind of old world, you know, feel to these buildings. You know, they're far bigger and far taller than some of the other buildings, which have you know, newer buildings, which have slightly wider floor plates with a lot more amenities. And so I think the real distinction at the end of the day is, yes, it's those old class B buildings and stuff that, that are suffering. But it's also the buildings that are built before 2015 that don't have the best HVAC systems, the best amenities, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Oh, interesting. You said that there was a change in office buildings around 2015. Was there some sort of shift specifically? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, we used 2015 as kind of an arbitrary number to, 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 to delineate new, new, new product, new designs. Um, you know, I could have said 2010, I could have said 2013, 14, but 2015 was the kind of cutoff that we arbitrarily showed. And, and the reason why we say that is because there has been a significant change in the way, you know, offices are designed, what kind of amenities are put in, what kind of technology is put in. We, we only need to think about HVACs and, the, you know, the rise of ESG and how important air quality is in, you know, that sort of efficiencies. And, you know, certainly buildings that were built, you know, in previous decades don't have that and they need to get up to speed. So I think that's the, the big difference. But I, you know, I, 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 new is the important thing. Newer quality, better designed, higher efficiency buildings are, are where it's at. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. When I look at downtown Toronto, there are some buildings that appear to be office towers being constructed downtown mm -hmm. that started in the last year or two or three, like during this retreat from offices. And I've wondered, are they going to be doing anything differently to account for these changes for more people wanting to work from home? Yeah, I'll, I'll caveat by saying that a lot of the new office supply that's under construction, Toronto is on a, under a, a very large office you know, construction cycle. You know, three to four percent of the overall inventory is currently under construction in Toronto. But, you know, the, the, the reason why those buildings were being constructed was because back when the plans were made to build these office buildings, office vacancy was two to four percent in Toronto. You know, you go back to 2015, 16, 17, we started seeing vacancy rates go down to almost zero. There was no space available to lease. And so it made good sense for developers at that point to develop new buildings. But as you know, it takes a long time to build an office tower. So what we're seeing, a lot of that construction is reflective of office market conditions several years ago. And interestingly enough, a lot of those new towers were pre-leased back then to existing tenants in the market who wanted that new stuff. So a lot of that space is spoken for, although we are starting to see some of even that space come back into the market as a sublease space. 
key example of that is the well, a very big development in Toronto. It's kind of mixed use, but there's a big office component. Shopify was the major tenant in that office building. And Shopify decided that they didn't want to take all the space. And so they put, you know, the space that they had pre-leased in that building when it comes online into the sublease market as well. So there's even in with new buildings, some pushback on there. But to your point about our developers shifting gears, one thing we have noticed, and it's not necessarily that they changed the development of the new building. It's more like they targeted a different use is lab space. Office lab space is becoming more of a, you know, an area where, you know, developers are shifting towards, you know, the demand for lab innovation. You think the Mars project and, you know, things up by the hospital. So there is a little bit of a shifted use there. Do you mean like actual scientific laboratories or do you mean like collaboration spaces? It's collaboration spaces, it's innovation space, but there is a lab component to it as well. You may not see it in the downtown markets nearly as big, but you would definitely do see it in the suburban markets when they're creating, you know, new medical office buildings and things like that. But some of the downtown spaces are much more think tanks and collaborative think tanks that are positioned next to, you know, technology or healthcare that are driving some of that. So like the Mars District in, in Toronto is exactly that. We're seeing some developments that are catering around that. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not very large. It's not going to shift the, the dynamic of the office market because a lot of, you know, when I was talking about First Canadian Place in Toronto, A lot of those traditional office buildings don't lend themselves to lab usage and things like that. So the big question, I think, becomes what do we do with a lot of excess capacity or some of these older buildings that are not going to function as a traditional office building anymore? And and I think that's where the industry is kind of shifting towards is rethinking what do we do to repurpose these office buildings? I've asked other people familiar with this, whether we'll see a wave of empty office buildings converted to residential real estate because we do have a housing crisis. And the answer has been sort of wishy-washy. It's always sort of been like, it's not that easy. You know, apartments need to have access to exterior walls so that there's light. Some of the floor plates aren't that easily removable. It can be quite expensive to do this. There is some science, like Calgary, I think, has a program to subsidize this for developers. Do you expect that that is going to be an accelerating trend? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's going to be more scrutiny about how we can change the use of office. To your point, from a development standpoint and from a structural standpoint, it's not that easy. Office buildings tend to have very big floor plates. So to convert it into a residential use, it doesn't make a lot of sense because some units will be way too big. Others will be too small. Some won't have windows. Elevators are in the wrong places. So there is an issue with that. For the ones that are structurally good for a conversion, you then have to go down the path of trying to get municipalities to convert the use. You know, their taxes are coming off of commercial tax rates, which tend to be higher than residential. They don't want to lose that. So you have to go to the municipalities to get that change. So the entitlement process can be a very big one. And then, of course, the cost. It has to be economic for the developer to be able to convert that. And so without incentives like the municipalities in Calgary are providing, it may not be economic for a developer to change that. So, you know, this isn't a silver bullet for the office market in terms of just converting it to another use. There's so many factors that go into being able to change that. 
And that being said, you know, residential is not the only use that you can convert this to. And I, I've heard talk now more and more about the shortage of hotel product. And so hotels might be, you know, something, whether it's a hotel for, you know, a guest to stay overnight or a hotel in use for an office worker where they there's amenities and stuff there. Um, these are things that are being thrown around about how to reutilize this space. But if you're a commercial real estate investor, the last three years or so had to have been painful for you where vacancy rates are going up in all the prime markets. What is the mood among commercial real estate investors these days? <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, there, there are two aspects to this. I think for commercial real estate investors, one of the biggest issues, like, like a, a, you know, a homeowner has been the rise in interest rates. Real estate is a you know highly important asset class that de- it really depends on the amount of capital and the cost of capital, availability of capital that's out there. And so the major shift in interest rates in the last couple of years has been the biggest factor. And I would say, you know, depending on how your capital structure, you know, how much debt or equity you use for your investment in owning that real estate, the pain comes out in different ways. So in the United States, for example, where the market is far more nuanced. There are a lot of small investors who rely on, you know, debt financing to buy their buildings. The lenders right now are saying, look, you know, what I'm seeing in the office market, I'm not going to lend you at the same rate and it's going to be much, much higher. So that's causing a lot of the borrowers who own these buildings to default. And that's tripping down, you know, obviously into the economy where you have a bunch of big office buildings, which are in the hundreds of millions of dollars defaulting. In Canada, a lot of owners of office, and I think this is a very important distinction, a lot of the downtown office buildings are owned by very well capitalized investors like pension funds. They have very, very deep pockets. And many of them who own these buildings are not flinching right now. You know, they, they can still put the money into the buildings. They don't feel a credit squeeze happening. But at the same time, they recognize that the value of their investment is starting to shift. And that is something that they're going to have to deal with to kind of understand, what do I do? Do I hold this asset? Do I sell it? Do I convert it? And these are long-term, because pension funds have long horizons, these are long-term issues that, that they're going to be dealing with, I think, in the next several years, is do I really want a portfolio of downtown office buildings whose values are going down, or do I change that usage? These are big, big questions. It would seem like there might be other pressures that could force those well-capitalized owners to make changes sooner. Like one of the things you've heard is that with downtown offices, you know, largely vacant, I've heard predictions that there could be more crime, <laughs> but I wonder if those pressures are going to lead to any distinct changes. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, every city is different and every city deals with its issues. And I've heard that narrative come up in San Francisco where crime, poverty, all that sort of stuff is adding to the woes of the office market there. There may be some truth to that, but the peripheral issues to me in Toronto and places like Toronto and Vancouver is this trade-off between, and it's a big discussion, and cities are involved in this, between the need to get housing supply in versus the amount of excess capacity we have in the office market. And I think the issues that Canadian cities are dealing with is, you know, we get, you know, a million people coming to this country now every year, and we just can't house them. And as a result, affordability becomes a problem, right? It's it's demand is outstripping supply, you get prices that go up. So even with the Bank of Canada raising interest rates, 
um, to try and cool the housing market. You know, the housing market keeps going because there's fundamental demand for it. That to me is the central issue. I, I am not a believer that our downtowns are falling apart, that there's crime. People want to live here. They want to be here, but, but there's just no housing to accommodate that. And even more importantly, no infrastructure because the, the demand grows very quickly for this stuff, but the infrastructure is slow to follow. And to me, this whole office discussion, the supply issue on residential is all part and one the same story. Are we meeting demand with the adequate supply? And unfortunately, on the residential side, we're not. And on the office side, we've got too much supply and not enough demand. So it's, it's two sides of the same coin. Yeah, no, it seems like such an easy equation, but it hasn't worked out that way. Yeah. Pulling out for the big picture, we have high interest rates, as you just alluded to. There is a tight labor market. You have this issue of remote work, offices, hybrids. You have the potential for a recession coming up. What do you see happening as you look ahead to the future in terms of offices and occupancy rates and things and utilization rates? Well, you know, it's interesting. When you go into a recession, the first thing companies want to do is save on costs. So interestingly enough, I think, you know, going into a recession at this point actually amplifies this whole structural change of work from home. Rather than taking up more office space, companies are going to be pulling back on office space to save on their costs, right? So, you know, you've got a double whammy impacting the office market as things go up. Interest rates go up, the cost of business goes up, and those businesses are just going to start to continue to try and offload, in my mind, office space. The other side, too, many companies, even though they want people to work in the office and want to be close from home, having people work remotely is a a general cost savings. So so what we might continue to see is that a recession might even force more companies to say, look, you know, you work from home. I'm going to save a couple of dollars here. And so we see that evolving. But I think these are very interesting times because, you know, Not only do we have these structural changes happening in the office market, you know, and across across the board, even in the residential markets, but we're also seeing a cyclical change where we're dealing with central banks who are intent on raising interest rates, regardless of whether we head into a recession, they want to just, you know, pile that in there. So it's it's a different world. It's definitely interesting. and, And it's opening up a lot of questions about, you know, where we come out of all of this. Have there been any significant transactions that tell us a little about what investors think is going to happen in this office market? Nope, nobody is traded. So, you know, office used to be the number one traded commercial real estate asset class, you know, in history. Nearly 50% of transactions were office. And interestingly enough, we haven't seen any big trades happen in the last couple quarters. Nobody wants to transact. And, and I think the reason why is buyers and sellers have different expectations. And so there is just a very wide bid-ask spread for, for transacting. So as soon as we have a transaction and a comp, it'll tell us exactly, you know, this is what the the, the market sees the pricing for, for, for an office building, but nothing is traded yet. Oh, so there's just a dearth of information. You're, you're talking about whole buildings, not kind of Shopify trading Google I'm talking about the actual office building itself or portfolio of those buildings. The last last big trade we had for an office building was RBC about a year and a half ago. It was Oxford Properties, who is Omer's pension fund, uh, basically sold all of RBC Place, downtown Toronto. And they sold it to the owner of Zara, billionaire out of Spain. 
And uh, Blake Hutchison, who's the chairman of Fomers and also has a very distinct real estate history, commented that if he, if that building would have traded today, it would have sold for quite a few million dollars less. So, you know, we're still waiting for a marker on where the market actually is these days. And have we ever seen a dearth of transactions like this? No, not in my mind. You know, I don't have stats that go back to the mid-1990s, but the mid-1990s in in Canada were a very rough time for real estate, both residential and commercial. And the seeds of that were a little bit different. The seeds of that were due to big Bank of Canada interest rate hikes back then as they tried to get inflation down. And that left a lot of excess supply in the office market that took almost nearly a decade to work out. If you remember the Bay Adelaide site, there was a big hole there that existed for years. And what happened was that was an opportunity for a lot of pension funds to buy these assets. So big portfolios of, you know, when you think about the Reichmans and Olympia, they all went bankrupt. And the pension funds came in and bought all this stuff at pennies at a dollar. So they acquired major portfolios of office due to that. And so that's that's how all that office is in the hands of pension funds in Canada. It had a history of a situation that's not too different than right now. The only difference in the 1990s is we didn't have this fundamental factor of work from home and stuff. It was more of an excess supply issue. In your sense, are there investors out there that are anxious to get back in and make some sort of deal or play in this market? Well, I, I think there are. There are many investors that have what we would call opportunity funds lined up. And you're seeing it in Europe right now where these office opportunity funds are everywhere. The only difference is you have to get a vendor, somebody who's going to sell your office building at a discount, a major discount. And that's the issue, I think, in Canada is we haven't seen that happen. Even in Calgary, you know, where we have 30% vacancy rates for years, you know, a good chunk of those office buildings were even owned by pension funds and nobody sold at a major discount. There were one or two buildings that did. You know, we talk about cap rates in the office market and the cap rates in Calgary before the oil bust were like four or five percent and then they rose up to eight percent, which meant like a big value decline for the few that traded. And that's the ultimate issue is that there are very few people who are willing to sell at a, at a loss, at a discount. Okay. So in terms of the future of the office, as we mentioned, many workers like working from home because as we discussed, no one gets paid to commute or sit in traffic, et cetera. And yet companies have leases. And so that may be one reason why many executives would rather stay in the office or have their workers stay in the office. So what often goes undiscussed in these conversations is that if you buy into that, this is in many ways a battle between labor and management. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think that's exactly the issue. I put my economist hat on it for a second. And I think the battle is one based on what type of market situation you are in the labor market. And with an all-time low in the unemployment rate, with the fact that there's scarcity of talent that everybody's quoting for and you just can't find talent, the battle will be won by the employee because it's an employee's market out there. If you don't give me what I want, I'm going to go to the next guy because there's a shortage of talent that will. And that is unfortunately, I think, what a lot of companies now are recognizing. They do want people back in the office. You know, it's a trust issue. They want to see people do their job. But if the, you know, the talented person, the employee that wants this stuff isn't going to get that, he's going to go somewhere else. So the employer needs to concede. And to me, that's just strictly a function of how tight the labor market is. It's an employee's market. 
Yeah, I guess the other sort of interesting aspect to this too, I think, is that the longer this goes on, the longer people stay out of the office, it seems to me it sort of becomes permanent. At a, you can get them in, but you can't get them back, you know, forever. Uh, yes, and, and, but again, this really depends on the state of the labor market. If, you know, at some point there's major job losses, you can't find another job, you know, em- employers might use their power to bring people back into the office and demand that. But right now they can't. But but I think what's happening, like if we get outside of the trust issue of who who wants what, it's just that I think the world is figuring out, you know, when it comes to knowledge work, how does it get done? And I think we're all figuring out now with the technology that's in place, you don't need to be, you know, in a in a specific place. That's a very, you know, post-war sort of construct, you know, a Don Draper world where there's typing pools and you know, a hierarchical organization. Today, the organizational environment is much flatter. You don't need to have somebody standing on top of you while you enter in widgets because that's not how the economy works. So I think, you know, that's that's kind of, you know, what we're trying to figure out right now. And you and I are both knowledge workers, right? I mean, I'm at home. I don't know if you're at home, but we can do this business the way we're doing it right now, right? And and I think that's the whole point is that the world has changed. And I'm not a believer that office buildings go away. There still is a big use for people and companies to get together. There is a collaborative element that needs to happen. There's also, you know, like a family, you need to get together with your family every now and then, and you need a place to do that. But I think the way we work and the way the world works these days is totally, totally changing. Yeah. And the only thing I'll add to that, too, is that as a parent, you know, as someone who's fairly advanced in his career, I don't really need to go into the office. But if I were younger, if I were just starting off in my career, I think I did gain a lot from being in the office, being around more experienced people. So like you say, there is a reason for the office. I'm way more productive, I feel like, at home. But there does feel like there is this battle going on for the future of the way we'll work. Well, yeah, I think that's the, it's it's a great I, you know, study and demographics too, to your point, I'm a parent, you know, and I I like the fact that I have flexibility to see my, you know, my kids and be able to do stuff with them. My career is well in advance. So, you know, going into the office now for me is more social than anything else. Um, You know, when I go in, it's I'm meeting everybody, talking to the team, you know, giving pep talks, meeting other people. I don't spend time doing what I would call productive work, you know, like the work that you and I are doing right now or writing a report or doing stuff. So, you know, that's a big part. The other thing I will say to your point is younger people absolutely need that sort of camaraderie in real real life to to mentor with other people. But young people are changing too, you know, like, and, and I relate this to online dating. A lot of young kids these days date online and they establish relationships first online before they even meet in person. That's been happening for a long period of time. If they're doing that in their personal lives, I don't see how they can do not do it in, in their private lives too. I'm, I'm a firm believer that people, whoever a per- professional is who has great values is going to excel online or in person either way. So it's, it's really how they utilize the stuff. I, I think it's a very big misnomer to say that technology allows people to slack off. You know, that, that's, that's not what's, what's happening. Well, it's fascinating. Carl, thank you so much for coming on Down to Business to talk to me today. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Carl Gomez, Chief Economist and Head of Market Analytics at CoStar. 
Thank you for listening to this double episode of Down to Business and supporting this show. This was a team effort. Bryce Hall executive produced this episode of Down to Business. He composed and performed the original music you hear on this show, and he designed the logo. Victoria Wells, Noella Ovid, and Pamela Heaven provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with more episodes. But in the meantime, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.